0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Her Money is made possible by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're encouraging you to always be in the financial front seat when it comes to your money. Discover how at fidelity.com slash front seat. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hey everybody, it's Jean Chatsky. Welcome to Her Money. This week, I'm excited to be sitting down with my friend, Randy Hutter Epstein. She is a medical writer, an adjunct professor at Columbia University, a lecturer at Yale, a proud graduate of the University of Pennsylvania. Go Quakers. She is out with her new book. I say go Quakers so much on this show. People (laughs) get really, really sick of it. But you are out with a great new book. It's called Aroused which is a fabulous title, by the way, aroused the history of hormones and how they control just about everything. Randy, thanks for being here. It's good to see you. Oh, thanks for inviting me. So we are a money show, which means that I know all of our listeners who subscribe to the show are thinking, okay, where's she going with this? You know, why are we talking about hormones. But let's just lay it out. Women spend more and more of our disposable income every single year on health care, especially as we get older. But for some women in their 20s and 30s, hormones are an issue and they can cost us a lot of money. We should know what
2: we're buying. That's exactly right. Women spend a lot of money on hormones whether they're trying to prevent pregnancy, whether they're dealing with menopause. And then we have to add in that there's all sorts of autoimmune illnesses that people are dealing with. So right now, today, if you want to have diabetes type 1, you better have a lot of money and the wherewithal and the time to be picking up the phone and fighting with your insurers and all the other accessories that you need for diabetes. So It's a financial issue. Hormones have become a financial issue.
1: What inspired you from the whole field of medicine to take this deep dive into endocrinology and hormones? Uh, Well, for the past, oh gosh, it feels like for the
2: past forever. But let's just say for the past 10 years, (laughs) I've been digging into the scientific literature now and historically. I love looking at newspaper articles from 100 years ago. And I also talk to a lot of people. I talk to a lot of women about what their worries are. And I really felt like people are confused when it comes to hormones. There's so much confusion out there.
1: All right. So let's take a step back. What are they? When we talk about hormones, when I think about hormones, I go right to birth control, right? I go right to estrogen. I go right to progesterone, testosterone, all the owns. Exactly. But we... What it, what it, what are they?
2: Well, I'll tell you, when we think of hormones, right, we think like boobs and sex and your period. Right. And it's so much more. Or people think hormones is like this vague like, "Oh, I'm so hormonal," which is supposed to mean bitchy women and women going off the rails. But spoiler alert, we all have hormones. It's not just women being cranky, because sometimes we have a reason to be cranky. It's yes. not our hormones. But what are hormones? It's a very specific definition. Hormones are chemicals that are secreted from one gland in the body and hit a faraway target. When I say far away, I don't mean New York to LA. <laughs> I mean from a very tiny microscopic point of view from your head to your ovary. That's far away from a tiny chemical perspective. Now, you might think, well, everything works that way. Obviously. No, obviously not. I describe hormones as your internal wireless internet. And again, we think like, of course, because I send an email, And I know it's going to reach that person, and hopefully not other people along the way, um, but that's the way it's supposed to work. That's the wonderful way your hormones work. So let me put that in contrast. We used to think that everything had to travel along nerves in the body. So any chemical messenger, which made sense, has to march along a path, like going down a train track. Or we thought that you just waft down the blood like oxygen, like on a little raft and it just bangs into wherever it's going. But hormones are so much different and it's so miraculous in a way. Hormones, think of this teeny tiny, less than like a little grain of salt coming out of your brain and it knows that it has to hit your pancreas or it has to hit your ovary. So it's like a well-aimed, arrow bow and arrow
1: unless it misses right or unless it fluctuates i remember when i was pregnant with my son he was born with a heart condition which i've talked about on the show before and he's really great because he's had wonderful medical care through his whole life but my doctor said to me the miracle is not that this happened. The miracle is that healthy kids are born every day because a million things have to happen in order to create that healthy baby. And when I was thinking about hormones, I almost think it's the same thing, that so many things have to go right in order for that hormone to hit your pancreas. Oh, it's
2: astonishing. In the book, I describe children born with ambiguous genitalia. That means they come out and externally they're not 100% of what you think a boy should look like or 100% of what you think a girl should look like. And when I describe in the book all the hormonal tugs and switches that have to go on and off at precisely the right time to create a little human that looks exactly conventionally the way we think humans look it's amazing that any of us fit into that normal category when we
1: talk about fluctuating hormones and and you mentioned feeling hormonal or that people say oh she must be hormonal which I got to say I hate right i mean it's fine for me to say it about me of course but if somebody else says it about me or about one of my girls like no that's not okay and yet they do fluctuate and we get emotional, or we lose sleep, or we feel more or less productive, or we spend money like crazy people. So what is that?
2: Well, I'm not discounting that hormones affect behavior. I'm discounting men that, like, you say you're angry about something and they're like, oh, you must be hormonal. No, actually not. Maybe you were angrier or maybe you expressed your frustration more vehemently than you would have, but it doesn't mean hormonal doesn't equal stupider. But yes, we are learning more and more how hormones affect the brain. So progesterone, for instance. Progesterone was named for progester, helping maintain a pregnancy. But it's not just like a little hormone in your womb. We now know that there's receptors in the brain for progesterone. We cannot say that every single woman reacts this way when her progesterone goes up. But we can say that there are some women who are very sensitive to the impact of progesterone. So there are women, like I know me, for instance, when I was on the horribly higher dose birth control pills that (laughs) were around in the 80s, that doctors said, oh, they're fine, they don't have such horrible side effects, but those of us who are in their 50s remember they did. Oh, yeah. But the progesterone in that made me really depressed. And I was in medical school at the time, and I thought medical school is making me depressed, which can cause depression, by the way. Being in medical school, but it was. I went off the birth control pill and I'm like, wow, now I feel like a new person. There's young women today who go on the birth control pill and it's much lower dose and they are more sensitive to progesterone. There's no test to find out if you are or not. But if you're a young woman and you're paying for this birth control pill and all of a sudden you're thinking, Ugh, all my courses at school are so boring. I don't know why I hate this semester. My friends are annoying me. Maybe I'm not in the right college. Maybe I'm not in the right place. Maybe you want to figure out a different way of birth control. And interestingly, some of those women can then choose to go on an IUD, which also has hormones, but it doesn't seem to get into your bloodstream as much as the pill.
1: Or it doesn't have to have hormones. So I, right. I don't know which hormone I'm so sensitive to. But I tried the birth control pill in the 80s, was a big old fail because I got nauseous. And when I got the IUD with the hormones, nausea again. And I ended up getting the one without the hormones, which was fine. Yeah. And so it's very personal.
2: Like I know someone who just recently, young woman who went off the birth control pill because she seemed super depressed. And now is on the IUD with small doses of hormones, and she seems fine on that. But, yes, you can do them the non-hormonal route. But it's very – it's so individualized. But I think what's important is women should be aware. You're paying money. You're going to the doctor. You're buying these hormones, whether your insurance
1: pays for it or not. If you're not feeling well, speak up. I want to get into that a little bit more, the cost, the insurance – discussing these things with our doctors. But before we do that, let me just remind everybody that her money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. And no matter what stage of life you're in, I feel like we're talking talking—we're talking about every woman here from college to menopause, whether you are single or married or divorced, it is vital for all women to be actively engaged in their finances and their investments and their healthcare before it becomes a necessity. So know what you own, know what you owe, what your goals are, have a financial checkup at least once a year. That's what it's called when you're in your financial front seat, and you can learn more at fidelity.com slash I am with Randy Hutter Epstein, Dr. Randy Hutter Epstein, author of the new book, Aroused. Interesting, you went to med school and then you became a journalist, which, you know, I hope you didn't go into debt to go to med school because that would have been like not the best financial move.
2: No, I probably would have been (laughs) financially better off maybe doing something like cosmetic surgery, probably. Yeah. But um, I really felt that we need better medical communication. And maybe I'll help save people money. Maybe I'll help write. I don't think I'm bringing in tons of money for myself. It's probably not the most financially secure way to go about your life, writing books. But I think that my books can help people avoid spending money on things that they shouldn't.
1: Well, there's a ton. Just like there is a lot of financial illiteracy, a lot of things about finances that people don't understand, Healthcare is a big field of illiteracy. People don't know how to speak the language. They don't know how to talk to their doctors.
2: Exactly. And I think that's a big issue. And getting back to the finances of it all, it's crazy when it comes to women's health still because, for instance... If you're a menopausal woman and you want to go on hormone replacement therapy, a mix of estrogen and progesterone, if you have a uterus, it's such a weird thing because you think everyone does, but if you've had a hysterectomy, you can go on estrogen alone. The progesterone just protects any chance that the estrogen would cause you uterine cancer. Anyhow, you go on those pills and your insurance company, for most women, your insurance company is like, fine, we get it. What if, let's say, you've had breast cancer or you've had a history of heart disease or you just don't feel like taking the pills, but sex becomes uncomfortable after menopause and you decide, you know what, I've tried other things, but I want an estrogen cream. Guess what? Insurance companies tend—I mean, I'm not, I haven't talked to all of them, but I've talked to a lot of women—it's harder to get reimbursement for your estrogen cream. A man can walk into a doctor and say, hey, I'm having trouble getting it up. And it's like, oh, don't worry here.
1: And the insurance will cover your Viagra. Well, it's not just that. It's the flexible spending accounts. So the Viagra, you can get reimbursed if you make a payment through your flexible spending account. But I went out to lunch with the folks who run FSA Store, which is a place that only sells stuff that you can get reimbursement for through your FSA. So many products relating to women are not covered. They had a huge fight to get breast pumps covered. It should not be this way.
2: No. So a breast cancer expert said to me that she has found for many women, after they've gone through chemotherapy, they don't want women on estrogen pills. They've found that women do not have problem getting coverage for their wigs, for after chemotherapy, yet they have problem getting coverage for their estrogen vaginal cream so sex isn't painful.
1: So let's sort of take it in stages. What do we do about, because I don't know that we're going to change the insurance companies, but we can start to talk to our healthcare providers about the cost of things, about comparing costs, about ne- Negotiating a better price, about understanding what the blue book value of these services actually are. You know, it's interesting, and doctors are
2: having to educate themselves for the first time. When I went to medical school, we didn't learn anything about finances. We never thought about the cost of anything. You just wrote things or you sent patients, get an MRI, get this, try this drug. And even today, there's doctors that say, women will say, well, how much is that mammogram going to cost me? And I was at a meeting with all these experts that said, we sound stupid, but I don't know the answer because we have such a complicated system that I have to say, I don't know. I don't know what your insurance is. I don't know who, if your employer has a better deal with Aetna than someone else who has a deal. So Doctors like, I don't know. Doctors who do mammograms sometimes are like, I don't really know how much you have to pay. And that's a crazy system. It's like going to a store and trying to buy a couch and having the person there like, I don't know. I don't know how much it's going to cost you, but I think you need a couch. So get it and you'll get slammed with bills afterwards. So I think we need doctors and there, there is there there's been a trend now for doctors to get MBAs to learn more about finance And I think when it comes to women's health, women have to bring up these issues. And it starts with not the finance so much, but just bringing up the issues. There's a lot of doctors that have told me, particularly women who have had health scares or have health issues, whether it's heart disease, breast cancer, women, unlike men, feel badly saying, hey, you know, my libido went down or sex hurts because you've done so much to help me with my cancer and I really don't want to bother you with this seemingly insignificant thing. So one is we need doctors to start asking women questions about their entire quality of life and then we need women if your doctor's not bring it up to bring it up and then bring up how much is this going to cost me and you know is there anything that you can do within your hospital system to figure out how I can get reimbursed because I think we need that pressure and we can't we know as women you can't just like be picking up the phone individually you need the backing of a healthcare system
1: and the backing of your employer, the backing of your insurer. I mean, when you work for a company that has a lot of employees, you have a lot of power because they are a big consumer, and we should all be able to use that. There's information in your book, I know, on IVF, on fertility solutions, on things like egg freezing. And before we wrap up here, it's such a hot topic these days. What's your take?
2: Well, I write about egg freezing in my last book, Get Me Out, A History of Childbirth, and that's where I really take a deep dive into egg freezing. You know, egg freezing started really by this one amazing woman, Lindsay Knorr, who I've written about, and she had her eggs frozen before it was a thing to do. She basically had these doctors experiment and try. Because she was going under and she survived and has been successful, she had tongue cancer. And basically, the doctors said to her— we're going to cure you, no worries. Oh, and by the way, you know, you're 24 and you're never going to be able to have babies. And she, because she's an amazing person, was like, nope, not good enough. And so she has survived. She has children. Ironically, not through the eggs that she froze. She maintained her fertility. But that's how egg freezing started from women who were undergoing chemotherapy because chemotherapy can affect your hormones and can affect your fertility. I think that there's been a little too much of a push for women to spend a lot of money to freeze their eggs when they have no issues with fertility. It's being sold to them. I went to some of these meetings, and it's basically like, hey, come on, you'd spend $20,000 on a car, or you'd spend $15,000 on this. Why wouldn't you spend this much money on your health? And I sat in a meeting where they made all these women who were 25 years old over cocktails feel like... Chances are you're never going to meet the right guy. Chances are by the time you meet the right guy, you're going to not be fertile anymore. So, hey, give us your 10 or 20 or whatever the cost is. And isn't that worth a life? Well, there's a few things going on. One is that's a huge gamble. Right. And I think you're preying on women's fears. I have no problem in women freezing their eggs if it's covered If your insurance covers it, if you're not paying out of pocket for this gamble, we also we're getting better at thawing eggs. Eggs don't freeze as well as sperm freeze. Sperm, freeze, defrost, whatever, you know. years, right? Well, because they're simpler. (laughs) I mean, you know, I don't want to, I mean, it is kind of a microscopic thing of men versus women, but, you know, sperm is just like a blob of DNA with a tail. That's it. Eggs are the largest cell in your body and they're complicated. Yeah. You know, they're so
1: complicated. <laughs> they're wonderful, complicated creatures with a lot of fluid. Sometimes this is this is the takeaway from this episode that sperm is just a blob of DNA with a tail. Right. right. And most of the time they can't swim straight, for the
2: record. <laughs> most of the time they swim crooked and some of them go backwards. Okay? Okay. But um there's no guarantee when you thaw that egg, it could get ruined during the thawing process. So I think it's a big risk. I think it's way too expensive now. To me, I don't. I wish that egg freezing were not marketed the way that, okay, get this Porsche, you can afford it. Is it
1: going to be like LASIK in that it's really expensive now and five, ten years from now, it's going to be
2: dirt cheap? Well, I hope that five, ten years from now it's covered so that it's considered a medical issue that if you're gonna freeze your eggs, then it is covered by your insurance or whatever, so that you're not paying out of pocket
1: for this. Um, Randy Hutter Epstein, you are terrific. Thank you. Oh, thank, you. thank you. I'm, you I'm so, so much. happy to have been here. We are happy to have you and we will be right back with mailbag. <laughs> and kelly is joining me in the studio kelly heldgren of course our producer also represents the millennials among us i do what i liked about that conversation with randy and i think people who were listening could tell and she and i've known each other since college Mm -hmm. and we haven't seen each other all that consistently through the years but we're on some committees together and I did love how she spanned the gap. Like, we know we've got listeners who are in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, and she hit them all. So I was very pleased. Um, We've got questions from our
0: listeners. Our first question is from Corey. She writes, I'm about a year post-divorce, and my two teenage daughters live with me most of the time. I received about 110000 in stock from my former husband's employee stock from a biotech company where he worked for many years. Here's my issue and dilemma. My financial advisor wants me to sell some stock to diversify my portfolio and get a—is it—do I say HELOC? HELOC. HELOC.
1: HELOC Home Equity Line of Credit. So he wants her to borrow against her home. Ah.
0: For home repairs and renovations, my parents think I should sell some stock to pay for some much-needed maintenance and some renovations on the house instead of taking on debt to do that work. I'm also looking at some additional grad school courses because I want to retool my career and boost my earning power in the future. I've thought of selling stock to pay for a portion of tuition costs, too. Any suggestions for some quick and dirty ways to do this math, or should I have another meeting with my financial advisor now that I have some concrete plans?
1: Okay, so on the quick and dirty side, this is one of those scenarios where you would want to compare the cost of funds. So when you're looking, for example, at that last scenario, at borrowing to go to school or taking the money in the form of student loans or grad school loans versus taking money out of a HELOC, Um, or out of the equity of your home, you're going to compare the interest rates, and you're going to see where you get a better deal. The tax law did change a couple of things there. Now, home equity debt is only deductible if you're using it for home-related improvements. So, if you're using it for school, it's not going to be deductible, which means the interest rate on its face is what it's costing you. Student loan debt does have a tax deduction still, so there you'd be able to take the interest rate and subtract the tax deduction. And so you just have to know what you're comparing so that you get to an apples to apples after tax basis. But those first two questions are financial advisor questions. So it sounds to me like $110,000 in the stock of one particular company represents a big chunk of your portfolio. And for that reason, I'd say diversification is probably a really good move. I don't like to see anybody with more than 25% of their stock holdings in any one company. And a lot of people would say 10% is even too high. The reason I go higher than that is because sometimes when you work for an employer and they match you in company stock, it's really hard to bring the numbers down on a consistent basis. But looking at whether you want to borrow from the home, borrow from the retirement, sell a little stock, that's a financial advisor tied up in a bow. And so you don't need to go for a big, full financial workup. But I would pick up the phone because it sounds like you have an advisor and give them a call. I wish I had 25% in Amazon. You know, I was looking at Amazon the other day and thinking, I remember when Amazon was just a little company shipping books by mail. Everybody loved it. One of those things that I I should have bought Amazon, I should have bought Apple – You know, the nice thing is we do own them. You own them. You own them in your big diversified funds, Mm. and they have helped you in the growth of those big diversified funds. If you've invested in the markets as a whole, you have benefited, but clearly not as much as (laughs) if you
0: had bought it as a pure play. Right. Now we'll do one from Lindsay. I've been hearing you recently talk about freezing credit. I recently had a baby who now has a social security number. Is there a way to safeguard her identity against fraud?
1: First of all, big congratulations, Lindsay. That is fantastic. Very, very happy for you. The best move is actually to freeze the child's credit. And if your child has a social security number, you ought to be able to do this. You can't do it in every state. Um, Consumer Reports did a recent story on this, and they outline that you can freeze a child's credit in about half of all states. So I would say go ahead and look at that. You can also get in touch with the three credit bureaus, Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion. They offer solutions that help parents protect their children, even when their children are very young. And, I mean, horrifyingly, This Consumer Reports story that I mentioned pointed out that the youngest known case of identity theft was on somebody a month old. So you are not asking this question too early. You can't ask it too early. That's crazy. It is. It's crazy. That's nuts. Crazy. So freeze that child's credit.
0: Wow. Wow. And we'll do one more from Tamar. I love your show. I listen every week while I commute to work. Thank you, Tamar. We are starting a home renovation and need to take out a large loan, home equity loan. From our research, we decided we want a HELOC. H- H- HELOC? Yes. Okay. So that we can have a line of credit of 150000 and only take what we need. We hope not to take it all. How do we find and compare various banks and lenders in order to get the best rate? The
1: internet is your friend here. You can go online to various um, sites that compare interest rates, hsh.com, bankrate.com, gobankingrates.com. They'll give you a sense of what's a good rate. And then you can talk to a variety of of mortgage lenders. The same place you'd shop for a mortgage is the place that you'd shop for a HELOC or a home equity line of credit. Let me just for Our listeners who don't know the difference lay out the difference between a HELOC and a home equity loan. A HELOC is a variable line of credit. So the interest rate moves with the prime rate generally, and we're in an environment where interest rates are going up. You only, though, with a HELOC are charged interest on the money that you currently have out on that loan. So you take a HELOC for $150,000, but you only borrow 10, you're only paying interest on that 10. A home equity loan is a fixed rate product. Interest rate doesn't move. It's like a mortgage. Once you get it, you got it. Not all mortgages are like that. There are adjustable rate mortgages, but it's like a fixed rate mortgage. And you pay interest on the whole enchilada once you have the money out. So if you borrow $150,000, you're going to pay on the $150,000, even if one hundred and forty dollars of that is just sitting in the bank. For people who are doing projects where... They want to have access to money over time, but don't need it all at once. A HELOC is the better choice. And many lenders are just not making home equity loans as much as they used to. HELOCs are generally the way to go. But just a little education on the home equity line of credit, home equity loan market. They're both forms
0: of second mortgages. Okay. That was helpful. I didn't know. The difference. Now you do. Now I do. Now you do. Well, thank you, Jean, and thank you, everyone, for your questions. Thanks, Kelly. And now in
1: our weekly Thrive segment, here's a question for you. Could our friendships be holding us back at work? In a recent piece for Fortune, a writer named Malin Yen writes about chipsnetwork.org and this is a site that she co-founded to help women in tech law and policy grow their businesses by making the right connections with other women problem is it did not exactly go as planned although the women who connected forged friendships they didn't end up doing business together why not well they were afraid that asking their friends for business would damage their relationships. They were afraid they'd take rejections too personally, and they became shy about making other pitches. The women who actually did get an ask from a friend said that it sometimes caused a problem in their relationship. Look, on the long list of things that women are great at, being a friend is one of them. Our friendships tend to be deeply personal and meaningful, so much so that taking an intimate relationship and trying to turn it into a business relationship can feel awkward. Yen gave some suggestions for how women can use the strengths of their friendships and open the door to more transactional business conversations. And the one that stuck out to me is to ask how you can help every time you meet with a woman socially or professionally ask that woman to tell you two specific ways that you can help them and then follow through with what they ask she writes the directness tends to elicit a specific, actionable response and averts well-intentioned but vague promises to follow up. It also gives you permission to flip the tables and ask things in return. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Randy for the great conversation. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We also want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We record this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Track Tribe, and our show comes to you through PRX. Join us next week. We'll be back with another great guest, and we'll talk soon.